from 1 Corinthians. Please stand. Reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Please be seated. Today is a study in why you shouldn't preach topically. What do I mean? When you preach topically just on the cross, you often lose the context of where you're getting your verses from. So these verses that we just read from God's Word will actually need the preceding verses and the verses that come after so that you can actually really understand what's going on here in Corinth. Before we get there, Jesus once said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think that highlights what's going on here in Corinth. But let me ask you, if we could hear the content of your heart through what your mouth speaks, what would we hear? How do you speak about other people because you see what we say and how we say it often tells more about us than about the ones of whom we speak amen for example let me just take some of our leaders over the last few months Donald Trump talks about others I actually looked that this up on YouTube this morning you can go into YouTube and look at compilations of what people say. He talks about others frequently as losers. They are losers. That says more about him, doesn't it not? Because I'm great, but others are losers. I'm a winner, but others are losers. Just for equal time's sake, Hillary Clinton spoke of others as a basket of deplorables. Did you know that you were part of a basket of deplorables? 
And what worse is, a few sentences later said that a lot of Trump supporters were irredeemable. Do you know what it means to be irredeemable? Consigned to hell. No hope of salvation whatsoever. Because you're xenophobic, racist, homophobic, Islamophobic, any other phobic that you can think of that doesn't agree with the way I think the world should be. Condemned. But what about ourselves? How do you talk about other people? How we talk reveals very often, does it not, our own arrogance and what we think of ourselves and how we like to, in this text, boast of what we trust in. And what we trust in often conveys our own status or our own superiority over others. It could be our looks. Each week I look at Facebook or in the news media. I read the Daily Mail pretty much every day. I shouldn't, but it's a nasty addiction I've got. But fat shaming, because the person who's doing the fat shaming goes, look at me. I'm handsome. I'm fit. I've got washboard abs. I'm wonderful. And you're not. You should be like me. That's their, that's their status. Could be party affiliation, intelligence, the school you go to, your own wealth, your country, your church. We go to the best church in Jacksonville. <laughs> Isn't it true, though? You go to many churches, and often, as you're listening to what is actually being said, the subtext of what is being said, there isn't any other church like ours. We meet at the rescue mission. We like poor people. We like black people. We're into drug addicts. It can become a kind of boasting, can it not? That you're trying to convey to somebody else what kind of person you are. Every time people get up at these awards ceremonies, they're always, you know, they know they're getting this wonderful, prestigious award, you know, an Oscar or an Emmy or Golden Globe or something like that, but they've got to be able to show at the same time that they're really in for the underdog. I've done my service. I've been to the Sudan. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other. What do you boast in? What status do you obtain for yourself that doesn't come from Jesus Christ? In Corinth, the deep implications of the gospel were yet to shatter the cultural values and the baggage the Corinthians were carrying that, in verse 17, Paul says, emptied the cross of its power. Here they are, a church plant. Paul was their church planter, and they didn't like him very much. Can you imagine us? We're, we've been going, haven't we, as a church for three or four years now? Can you imagine me getting up here one morning and preaching a, a gospel message, and the next thing we know, you've got half the congregation who goes, hey, I think I like Jonathan better than that, David. And the person who planted the church, suddenly you all begin to turn against him. That's what was happening at Corinth. It's right. And what was going on? 
Why would they be doing that? Because underneath the surface, they may have played lip service to being saved by Jesus Christ and his grace. But underneath, you know, you're not saved and thoroughly saved until your baggage begins to come up and your real cultural values, what you really trust in, what you really boast in, becomes coming up to the surface. It's the Lord actually wants to get a hold of that stuff. Because that's what controls behavior. That's what controls your mouth. The church in Corinth, if you go back, look with me. Let's do a little bit of context. Verse 10, chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Paul is probably in Ephesus. A group of people have come to see him and said, Paul, you got to deal with this. He's probably received a letter too. The letter just came just before Chloe's people. And Chloe's people come and say, Paul, all hell's breaking loose at Corinth. Chloe's people said that there is quarreling among you, brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul. He didn't ask for that. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle. Or I follow Christ. Probably people who are super spiritual saying, no, Christ is the one for me. He gives me my status. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Those were some of the earliest converts in Corinth. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. He's just, he's just remembered, hey, hang on a minute. I did, there, was, there were some others. Can you see how he's thinking as he's, as he's writing? <coughs> Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's the context for the sermon on the power of the cross. How does the power of the cross operate in the human heart? In Corinth, it was losing its power. It was being emptied of its power. Why? Because of the cultural baggage of the Corinthian believers. They lived in a Roman Greco world, not dissimilar from our own American world. America is built on what? Three capitals, London, Jerusalem, and Athens. We get a lot of our culture, our democracy from from the Greeks. There's a lot to be proud of there. But it was a triumph and shame kind of culture. It was a success-driven culture. And in Corinth, which was a nouveau riche, it was the new rich people of the Roman Empire had rebuilt Corinth. Corinth. It had been destroyed about five, 50 years before Paul was there. It had been rebuilt by the Romans. It was a beautiful place full of beautiful villas and people were living the rich life. And what was their cultural value? 
success. Being seen to be a successful person. And what was happening in the church, those people had become converted. Paul commends them for being filled with the Spirit. They were really gifted. They spoke in tongues. They had healings, prophecies. All kinds of things were going on in terms of the phenomena of salvation in that church. But underneath, they were still wanting to use the gospel itself now as a means by which they could bring status to themselves. And so once Paul left, having founded the church and went off to found other churches, other itinerant ministers would come along... And one of the most famous of those itinerant ministers was a man called Apollos. Now, Apollos, they think, probably wrote the book of Hebrews. And if you ever look at the book of Hebrews, it is a masterpiece of Greek, of incredible Greek language, probably some classical Greek. It's also a masterpiece of understanding the Old Testament. And so as these people come to church, maybe some rich member's uh, house one day, villa, they come in, and there's Apollos, and they're all looking at each other. Why didn't we know this before? Wow, Apollos, he's speaking like many of our poets. He's got this way with words. He's silver-tongued man. And you can imagine just all luxuriating. Oh, 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 my itchy ears. Oh, that is so good. You see, because what they were used to, if you went to a rich person's house back in the day, rich people were used to paying poets to come in and say wonderful things about them in front of all their guests. You see, and they were thinking about Apollos and about Paul and Peter in very much the same way. And Paul, maybe Pop, who's Paul? I mean, the guy, we can hardly put, I mean, many people think, you know, the impediment he had, this thorn in the flesh, was either his eyesight, look with big, with such big letters I write to you. Was it his eyesight? Some people actually think it was a speech impediment. He wasn't a great guy to listen to. Because in the Corinthian correspondence, we get people saying, hey, when Paul comes, you know, we get his, his, his presence, and that ain't really very good. But when he's away, he sends these letters. But these letters are masterpieces of Gre- Greco-Roman rhetoric. They are. This is a masterpiece of writing here. But when he's here with us, oof, you know. They were ashamed of him. I mean, the planter of the church, for goodness sakes. Can you see what's going on? They were boasting, if I'm for Christ, I'm for Peter, I'm for Apollos. They were also in competition with each other. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What were they quarreling about? My guy's better than your guy. My preacher's better than your guy. Don't you know Tim Keller is better than this guy? I follow him, not follow him. Before you know where you are, the gospel is being loose. It's being lost. All the power of it is just being drained away. So Paul, all the problems that you're going to see in 1 Corinthians all derive from this. All the other behavior problems. This is why he goes with this right at the beginning of the letter. Now, who's boasting? 
let me show you a different way. What does Paul do with this? The problem here is not really trusting in Christ and the gospel, but in their own abilities, in their own wisdom, in their tastes for rhetoric and flowery language. And all of these give them status in the assembly and in the church. Therefore, what's going on? The fruit of this is that there is no sense of awe, no sense of humility in the assembly that they should actually be saved at all and be in a relationship with God. They're so self-focused. What Paul now does is reorient them back to the gospel to be God-focused. And this is what he does. God chose, he says, a foolish message. You've forgotten something, Corinthians. The way in which you speak about other people, whether it be Donald Trump, whether it be Hillary Clinton, whether it be anybody that you come close to, you've forgotten that God has chosen a foolish message for foolish people given by foolish preachers. That's Paul's message for those who are, who are boasting. Let me show that to you. Verses 18 through 25. A foolish message. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You follow his argument? Guys, come on. Through what you're saying, either about me, about Peter, about Christ, or about Apollos, it's not really about the gospel. That's more about you and your own seeking for success and status, even within the church. But you're forgetting something. Without the work of grace, without the work of the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, you would never have believed the folly of God. And what is the folly of God? Why were they tempted to go to all kinds of men's wisdom? Because Paul outlines it here. The folly of the Jews and why they rejected Christ crucified. In other words, a crucified God. Whoever thought of a crucified God? Whoever would have thought that up? One of the gods comes from... Where do they call that? Heavenly places. Olympus, thank you. One of the gods comes down and becomes a man. 
But all the gods that emanate in Greek mythology, they all become superheroes, don't they? Super gods. Woohoo! But this God comes down from Mount Olympus and gets himself crucified. Like, yeah, right. Who can follow that? Maybe we've got to think about something else. But no. It's the, that was God's folly. <laughs> That's the foolishness of God. Coming to do what? The Jews seek a sign. Why did they reject Jesus? Because they could not see that in Jesus, God was acting powerfully. But what they wanted was a sign. Do a sign for us, Jesus. Send back the Romans for us, Jesus. Push back Hellenistic Greek culture for us, Jesus, so that we can have our success as the true chosen people of God. So we can triumph over everybody. Do that for us, Jesus. Then we'll believe you. Jesus says, listen, I could call for a million angels right now, but I'm not going to do that. You see, your idolatry, Jewish people, very much our idolaters very often is that we always think that we can get God in a box. And that he's going to act in a certain way. And the folly of God is this. His madness is this. I'm not in a box. I do whatever I want. I choose this. I choose that. I do this. I do the other. I do whatever I want. And this time I've chosen to act in Israel's history in the fulfillment of everything that the prophets and the law have said in my son, Jesus Christ. And he will go to the cross and die a death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is my power. And the Greeks looked for wisdom. They enshrine reason. We can reason our way to God. We can reason our way to the good life. But God says, no. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the good life because his death takes away your sin and brings you back into relationship with me don't you see that Corinthian people it's folly God chose a foolish message Christ crucified the way in which you speak about other people have you forgotten your own need Stupid, jerk, idiot. You don't think you're all those things? Really? Which is actually where Paul goes. He's not trying to diminish the Corinthians here. He's just trying to say, guys, do you really have clear insight into yourselves? And then into all your boasting. Not only was there a foolish message that could work into their lives to diminish their boasting in themselves. But haven't you forgotten who God saves? Who does he save? Sinners. And in context here, God saves foolish people. You ever thought of yourself like that when you came to church this morning? I'm a fool. That's why I need to go to church. Hmm? I mean, most of the unbelievers, they see us as fools, don't they? Oh, why, why do we get up so upset? The Bible calls us fools. And that's what we are. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Where were you when the gospel found you? Behind some 7-Eleven? Snorting some cocaine and fastball? Hmm? Trying to make it up the ladder of success until you found that it was empty? You middle class, upper middle class? All your money in the world won't help you. What does Paul say? Look at this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You didn't go to the right schools, go with, mix around with the right people. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You're not aristocrats. You've got a lineage, you know, like William and Harry. Just in case, I had someone during the break there that someone said, where do you come from? England. <laughs> Verse 27, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Do you see that? Foolish, not wise. God chose what is weak. Are you strong? Do you think it was through your sheer intelligence that you came to know the Lord? And you pride yourself in that? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, those who have power, affluence, nobility. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. It's not only a foolish message of a crucified God, but guys, don't you see? That message goes to whom? It's an upside-down world now. The ones who usually don't get anything, the despised, the disenfranchised, the ones who are called to serve others and wait at tables, which is what a lot of the believers that were in the Corinthian church would have to do. If you get to the Lord's table, as we will today, part of the problem was is that the rich, were, they were meeting in their homes, and the rich were still meeting separately from everybody else, having their own time together and drinking the wine and some of them were even getting drunk while all the people that had just gotten off work wanted to come and hear the gospel couldn't and there was nothing left for them they were still being despised in the church but Paul reminds them here if you know that you've been despised why now are you trying to seek a status other than the one that's been given to you in Jesus. That's a status that no other status can come even close to. Because in it, God chooses you. You ever wondered why you can hear the gospel and you believe the gospel? Did you think it began with you? The Bible tells us over and over again that we were chosen in him from before the foundations of the earth. And that Jesus was chosen to die for his people from before the foundations of the earth. And it is the Holy Spirit who takes hold of you and grabs you in no matter where you are in your life. And he lets the veil fall from your eyes so that you can see your need of a savior because you begin to see your sin. Because until you begin to see your sin, you will never understand your need of a savior. And it is God that chooses to do that to whom? To those who are called, not to those who are perishing. Paul already sets up 
two people in life here, those who are perishing, those who don't believe, and those who are called, and those who do believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Can you see how it works? Why does God do it this way? John Calvin once said, most of us are never, ever convinced of our sinfulness. One of the reasons why I read the Daily Mail is because every day, David often says, doesn't he? You've heard David say it multiple times. The easiest doctrine in the world to prove is the doctrine of depravity. But most of us aren't convinced of it. It's always other people, which is why we say stupid, jerk, fool, right, about other people. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The word boast there has, it's not just vainglory or boasting. It's more of boasting what you trust in. I trust in that I'm smart, good looking, whatever it is. You know, the human heart, it trusts in all kinds of manner of things to make itself acceptable either to itself, to other people, or to God. But Paul says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Don't boast. We don't come in here this morning to boast of our perfections, of how wonderful we are, who we follow, which party we're affiliated with politically. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. We have given up all other wisdoms. And what is the wisdom of God? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It needs a whole other sermon. Those three words summarize the power of the cross. Righteousness in Jesus Christ you get a right standing before God that isn't your own. You didn't even put a single stitch in that cloth of righteousness. It all came from Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus, everything that he is as a human being, his life, his works, his speech, everything, his miracles has all been put judicially and put to your account. Therefore, you are not guilty, justified before a holy God in Christ Jesus. Ethically, sanctification is ethics. If you've been justified, you will begin to live like it. Out of response of gratitude, you don't live ethically to get God's love. You live ethically because you've been loved. And you want to do what's right because now you enjoy it because it's the right thing. And it's a way to please your heavenly father because of his great salvation in your life. You cannot claim justification without becoming holy in your life and deeply ethical in the way that you treat other people. Paul's saying it doesn't make any sense that you treat each other like this in the house of God. And then redemption is slavery. You've been Release from what kind of slavery? This slavery to sin. What does Christianity mean other than the power of the cross has come into your life in a way that it breaks the chain, the ball and chain that you were attached to sin? 
The Christian position is this. Before you weren't able to say no to sin, but now you are. There's a new power in your life. See Paul's argument here? How can you be going about saying, I get my status from Paul or Apollos and the way in which they preach, when all I did to you was preach to you about the cross, and that's what saved you? Isn't it crazy? The human heart. And lastly, a foolish message, a foolish people are the objects of God's salvation. Paul is trying to humble them here, to see themselves as they really are, without all of this vain boasting. And he says, and what about me? (laughs) A foolish preacher. Look at what he says in chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, the pattern of the Greek poets and philosophy and wisdom, etc. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. How is it, he's saying to the Corinthian people, that you are triumphing, you're speaking in tongues, you're ruling now and everything, oh, but a Honda, should have a Yamaha, right? I mean, you're, you're ruling now, you're in the heavenly places. What Paul is doing, Corinth is a letter of an over, here's a little theological voice, it's an over-realized eschatology. Do you know what that means? It means that they're so far ahead of themselves that they're removing themselves from this present evil age and the overlap of between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And they're thinking that they're way ahead of the future. Paul is in the past. We're going to leave him way behind. We're, we're above it all now. And Paul says, look, really? Look at my example amongst you. One of weakness. A wounded healer, as Henry Nouwen would say, not an unhealed wounder. Weakness. So what? So that the power of the cross would be not without its effect. And my speech, he says, and my messages were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's the bottom line. What are you trusting in this morning? What are you boasting in that makes you acceptable to God? Something within yourself? Or are your eyes focused on Jesus Christ? And him crucified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the Bible teaches clearly there's nothing else. Nothing. No boasting. Let the one who boasts, boast in what the Lord has done this morning. And may that then correct 
your ugly mouth. Amen. 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 Let's pray.